Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions, content, expressed, disturbing, and objectionable. Hi, I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, uh, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Pamela Weibel. I'll give it over to Sarg, but I'm going to take a mulligan on this, and um, I'm going to go to Dr. Weibel directly real quick. Uh, we, we, we were talking about this model of your practice bef- before, and maybe you recap that in just a second, but I'm going to ask the question, recap your model of your practice, and then you can maybe answer my question, Dr. Weibel. Um, do you think, I think, that students just don't even know that this is possible anymore, at least east of the Mississippi. The assumption is I'm going to go to work for the man, um, that that's my only option. Now, I see it differently in the West because I'm a West Coast guy, and I've been in the state of Idaho, and when you go out in the middle of the country, you realize there's a lot of people, doctors, that practice direct primary care, and they have scales for their patients, and they're very responsive to what patients can afford. Uh, so maybe you intro a little bit, go back over the type of your practice and your perceptions of whether or not students even know these are options today, or if they've been indoctrinated and thinking they're just going to be corporate drones. Yeah, I think students and residents, they don't know these are options because let's just face it, they're taught in sort of an academic ivory tower scenario around lots of specialists generally who, for specialists that are more hospital-based, they would have no idea what it's like to do outpatient primary care, for example. So you're not in an environment that even um, exposes you to primary care and definitely doesn't expose you to primary care in its native habitat, (laughs) which is in neighborhoods and real communities, okay? So some people are just sadly gypped out of this medical education, but let me just sort of simply say what this is all about. What I'm doing in opening an ideal medical clinic, and I just call it ideal medical care and ideal medical clinics because that's an easy word that has no medical jargon that means something to everyone. If you ask a fourth grader, do you want to have an ideal doctor, go to an ideal medical clinic, they'll say, yeah. If you ask a fourth grader, do you want to do a DPC or have direct primary care, they'll say, what? You know, so I don't think you want to lose people with the, you know, trying to discuss what you're doing with words that mean nothing to most people. So why don't we just use ideal medical care for the fact that I think most of us are searching for something more ideal. Okay. Now, what would that be? There's three different ways that I discuss, you know, a a clinic model. Number one, um, these are ways of looking at how you want to practice in the future. You're either going to be in a relationship-driven practice or a production-driven practice. Like you're in one or the other. And you definitely know which one you're in because you're either tracking numbers and feel like you're running late and worried about like the finances, or you are enjoying time with patients and having a more leisurely approach to your life and you're still making the same amount at the end of the day, FYI. So you can do it one or the other ways. And I want you to just make a decision in your life as medical students, and they should be getting these business strategies and basic concepts down sometime in medical school. Like, do you want to practice relationship-driven medicine or do you want to practice production-driven medicine? Some people love working in urgent care and they love, you know, production line medicine. I'm not saying that's bad. That's just not what I want to do. And I was forced to do it for far too long and I didn't understand what was going on to the point where I almost wanted to kill myself, okay? So relationship-driven, production-driven. Okay, the next thing is about centered care. Now, what kind of centered care do you want to deliver? There's, you know, the lip service, the patient-centered care. There's also, you know, if you look at medical practices, they're either truly patient-centered or they're physician-centered 
or they're administration-centered. Often these big box assembly line clinics are built around what's most convenient for the administrators. You know what I mean? That is an administration-centered. It doesn't matter how many times on the website they say they're patient-centered or how many brochures they have with smiling shutterstock photos of patients. They are an administration-centric practice, okay? Now, many physicians who are disgusted with these assembly line models who are trying to escape, you know, and sometimes going into other careers entirely, many of them see, they're trying to see if they can open their own clinic. Now, I think sort of a mistake that they make is they end up designing a physician-centric practice, okay? You're still off track, okay? Like, really, the most, per and so you're creating something that's probably better than an administration-centric big box clinic, but you've still got something that's built around you and your the convenience for you and what you want, but you're not the end user. So what I like people to do, this is part of the beauty of asking patients what they want as early as you can in your career and starting to like, um, you know, collect all this data, is that you really should be building your practice around what your patients want. And probably most of the time what your patients want is what you want too, so it overlaps pretty nicely. So I believe that, um, you know, most people that are that go into medicine uh, that want to go into primary care probably want to have a relationship-driven practice. They probably want to have a, a patient-centered practice. They don't know how to do it, but that's probably what they want. I mean, what, when you re read their personal statements on the way into medical school, they're sort of describing a relationship-driven, patient-centric practice. The third element to think about is what kind of payment structure do you want? Do you want direct pay or indirect pay? Like direct is just the old-fashioned, you know, 1950s style of the patient pays you one or two dollars per visit, which is what my dad was charging back in the 1950s, okay? Um, or indirect payment, which means going through insurance companies. So I think these are just some basic things that we need to understand. There's a fourth element that I really wish they would have taught me in medical school or college or high school, which is, are you by nature an employee, a business owner, or an entrepreneur? I have a blog on this that's titled, Are You an Employee, a Business Owner, or an Entrepreneur? It's very simple. It would have taken about five or 10 minutes for somebody to give me a survey for me to figure out like, if my basic personality is such that I should ever consider being an employee, which is a terrible idea for me. It's unfair for me and unfair for my employer because I have the personality of an entrepreneur, but I only discovered this like two or three years ago, which is like insane because um, I think it would really help medical students be less disillusioned with their careers if they could have some basic understanding what they're going for, you know, and see on the horizon all their options and where they fit in the healthcare system. I mean, some people might want to be urgent care employees, and that's perfect for their personality. But don't put an entrepreneurial family doc like me in an urgent care. I'll want to overdose on pills or get a shotgun. You know what I mean? So does that make sense? I think that's, yeah. it, no, it totally makes sense because I I see it and I, it's it's the education of our students doesn't have this and this is one of the things that really frustrates me is that I know and I know you don't like the term burnout I like I think you use like the term overwork better but as a physician who describes myself as burned out until I met Dr. Weibel and now I say I just feel overworked all the time I know exactly that but it was always it was never an issue it was always yeah well you got to go get a contract because of that debt you're facing and and so. For you to be able to tell students, look, you can have med school debt and still make a living and still be self-employed, I mean, that's a powerful message. Yeah, let me tell you, if you're ever wondering, can this work, um, 
there is a nurse practitioner that just finished the retreat that I lead where I basically just give them permission to like live their dreams. Right. And give them some basic business strategy. I mean, the first year she's in practice, she said she made $530,000, which was like, five times what she made before as an employed nurse practitioner. And she's like, I don't even know what to do with all this money. I mean, it's stressful when you make so much money, you don't know what to do with it. This year, she's going to probably get close to like, this is 24 months after opening. And she spent three in a broom closet in her hospital because her space wasn't ready. She's going to probably make close to a million dollars this year. And she's a nurse practitioner. She's actually making more than a lot of physicians that I've trained. I think the reason why she has an edge is she doesn't have as many wounds, emotional, psychological wounds to, to lick as um, medical students and residents. You know what I mean? Um, she, and, then, and then Jennifer, my friend, uh, who I told you about, who uh, sees everyone over 90 for free, I mean, I think she has a patient panel now of like three or 400 patients, and she's making more now than she did working at her corporation. Um, and her, her husband was the one that signed her up to, to come to my retreat because she was miserable at home, but she didn't think she was miserable. She thought she had a great life. You know what I mean? Now, in retrospect, she can see how miserable she was, but it's kind of like frog in the boiling pot. You don't quite see what's going on until everyone around you um, tries to tap you on the shoulder. And then you try to, like, rationalize that, well, you sort of have to do it this way, and this is how it is. This is, this is you know, what physicians do now. And, you know, but you don't, you can do whatever you want. My, I mean, my message is, like, dig out your personal statement and start planning now. You literally can have it all. Have your cake and eat it too. You can. Oh, and the thing is with Jennifer, it's so funny. She is with a DPC model because people pay her every month and she doesn't necessarily have to go into the office. She just gets, you know, money flowing in every month, right? She's really stressed out because she said um, she only works 10 to 3 a few days a week and she takes one to two hours off for lunch every day. And she called me the other day saying that, like, she's so bored she doesn't know what to do. And so she started painting the baseboards in her house. I mean, like, like <laughs> that sounds what? like a great problem to have. <laughs> uh, you paid off your debt, you're bored, you're painting your baseboards, like take in more patients then, you know, like just increase your patient panel and uh, give money to charity, um, uh, start a medical school scholarship. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's just, because if you think about it, what sustains these big box clinics is they take 74 to 85% of the revenue that you're generating as their profit. You know what I mean? And send you home with like 15, 20%. It's true. My first employer took 85% of my, if I saw you for, uh, and you paid me $100, they got 85 and I got 15 pre-tax. Wow. That's terrible. That is terrible. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in the last segment of this episode, we actually we closed out before giving our, our spots a chance to ask any questions. So that was my fault. I was rude. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick or Caitlin, uh, do you guys have any questions or comments either from last episode or anything else you wanted to discuss? Uh, well, tacking on to uh, what we were just talking about, how did you learn uh, these different models? That's a great question. How did you get there? Um, I think just by trial and error. I mean, I did see my mom in private practice when I was young, so I knew it, like it couldn't be like total rocket science. My mom's not even a <laughs> your poor mom. <laughs> I could what my mom did, what I saw that she was doing, 
is not any harder than what a fourth grader could literally do in running a business, meaning you accept money, you get your paper appointment. I was their secretary for a summer. You get you know, her, a paper appointment book, you fill in the times when people are calling, they show for their appointment, they pay you $150 or whatever it is you know, for your psychiatric visit. And so it's simple. And what she did is she rented out a whole uh, uh, floor of the certain building in Dallas uh, where her office was and then she rented out the other offices to other psychologists so she literally didn't have to pay any rent herself like so she was making money off the uh, kind of real estate deal or her you know she was paying her lease with other people paying her rent and then she was just making you know per hour you know a hundred some dollars so it was however long she wanted to work basically she could she could ramp up or ramp down based on you know how much my college tuition was and how much she thought I was that year in tuition uh help <laughs> and so so yeah it's 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 not hard to do this it do you really have an, do you have an EHR Oh, I have an electronic medical record that I created myself on my uh, Apple laptop. I originally was going to buy one uh, like 12 years ago, but I'm really determined to use my Mac, right? And most of the EHRs are like for Windows or, or you know, they, they didn't necessarily always work on Macs. So back then, I think I had the option of getting one for like $5,000 or the next price up was like 15000 And I was just... While I was trying to figure out like how to get a real EMR so I could be a real doctor, right? I was already seeing patients, so I started keeping track of their appointments on sort of a temporary ERA, the EHR that I created. And then I realized what I created was better than anything on the market, and it was free. So that's what I've been using the whole time, and um, it's compliant, and I can still bill insurance, and it's not like meaningful use Medicare compliant, but whatever it, it, you know, it works and I, and it hasn't slowed me down and it's way better. How much me. is a license fee for that? Nothing. How do we get, how do we get a copy <laughs> of it so we can start using it ourselves? Yes. You know, if you have a low volume practice, you pretty much know all your patients. You don't need all the bells and whistles. Remind them to a mammogram, remind, you know, all those things, these, you know what it is? It's one scrolling window and everything that's abnormal is bolded and it was sort of small font. So I could see everyone right away without lots of different colors and things flashing. And you know what I mean? It's just really, really simple. And all I did was take like a, a word, uh, what's like a editing pro, like pages, which is the Mac version of, of Word, right? And I just um, have a template that I use that I like on there and it, and it works great. And that's all I've been using for 12 years. And they're all password protected and locked. And my partner is an IT specialist told me I probably have the most secure medical record in the country. It's like not on the cloud, not on the web. You know what I mean? It's all, they're all, all individually password protected. And it was free. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Caitlin, do you have any questions? Um, I did. Um, come back. I'll, I'll jump in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Starting retreats, I just want you to know, like, I have these retreats now, and medical students can come basically for free. So you guys should be contacting me and trying to come. I'd love and to I come. Could write... Yeah, it's October. The next one is October fifteenth through nineteenth. It's awesome. It's Where great. at? They're in Oregon. Yeah, I know it's a big state. It's twice as big as Ohio. <laughs> right in Wish Hot Springs, so like um, an hour east of Salem. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. it's still in the Willamette Valley or up in the mountains? 
It's up in the mountains. So the Cascades, yeah. it's nice. Acres with hot springs. You should go in a sark. You should go too. And you too. <laughs> How do we get out of class? You guys try to get um, special permission to leave your school for three or four days uh, in October or May. I do them October and May. So medical yeah. students can come anytime. Just let me know. Idealmedicalcare.org. Contact me. Yeah. And then we'll put the link in the show notes as well for anyone listening uh, and interested. Um, but I, actually, Dr. Weibel, I wanted to ask you um, about something that you, I think you wrote a blog post about as well, um, about a, a Senate bill that was passed in Missouri. It was Senate Bill 52. Um, uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, you know, the, I, the whole idea behind it was to kind of curtail this medical student suicide problem that, that has been increasing. Um, I just wanted your opinion on it. Do, do you think that it's a step in the right direction? Do you think it's enough? What, what were your thoughts? Okay, yeah, I do think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's gone through, and this is the third time they tried to push it through. I think it had different um, Senate bill numbers each time. I don't know what the final one is, but it's called the Compassionate Medical Education Act, I think, was how, you know, that's the wording of it. And it's basically to screen medical students in an anonymous, uh, de-identified way and um, aggregate the numbers uh, for the six Missouri medical schools so that people applying to medical schools in Missouri have like a transparent, um, you know, have access to the fact that, oh, this medical school has a depression rate of 30%, this one has 10%, you know, like it would help you know where you might fit in and which medical school you want to apply to, because I do think people should understand not only what the academic history is for the school, like what percentage of students get into residency, but they should also know like how many people survive the whole process without mental health issues. You know what I mean? So that's as important as uh, having your grades is to have, you know, emotional health and academic health. So of course, you know, the proof is in the pudding and, and how do they actually, you know, carry this out? They need like a third party to, I mean, it, we, we just have to see how it's going to work, you know, mm-hmm. but in general, I think this is a step in the right direction because we need to have more open conversation about mental health of medical students. And I think they even tacked it on to sort of um, a college suicide awareness bill. So that's it's, it's like overall, like what is the mental health of our students in medical school and college and how can we increase awareness and help them get the services they need and improve the atmosphere so that, you know, this will only force medical schools who have a high percentage of depression among their students to address it. You know what I mean? Especially if it's going to be made public in any way. Right. Yeah. So it just pressure on. And and then generally speaking, um, do you think then that the solution to this problem is, is more legislative? You know, if, if we start passing these sorts of bills and, and, you know, forcing medical students to reveal that information, do you think that's where the solution lies or is it, is it something else? You know, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, the ultimate solution, I think, uh, with anything is from the inside out and the bottom up. We've got to be true to our hearts and souls. And you can't legislate, you know, ethical behavior. There's always loopholes. There's always ways that schools and hospitals are going to get out of doing things if they don't want to do it, right? We're pretty creative with our human psychology. It's the last frontier on the planet. So the thing is, we really need to be encouraging people to be ethical, humanitarian, loving, you know, citizens on this planet. And um, by not abusing our medical students, it would be really, it would set the tone for a life of joy in serving um, humanity, you know? And so 
I do think our medical school educators have a big task ahead of them in transforming the atmosphere at medical schools so we really can create the doctors that we'd like to have as we age and retire. You know, you, you want a nice doctor. I'm sure you don't want to be in a seven-minute visit with somebody who's been up 28 hours on a hospital shift for your brain surgery, Thomas Nasca or anyone else who leads a medical organization. Really, we need to create an environment where people can thrive and be the doctors that they always imagined. They wanted to be on their personal statements for some since they were four or five years old and wanted to do this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to you, Caitlin. Did you remember your question? You kind of uh, hinted at it, the, how the 28-hour shifts and particularly um, the demands of residency. Um, have you seen any changes with regards to that part of medical education? Um, sadly, I think that part is sort of worse because we did have a petition yeah. last August where we demanded that the AAMC and the ACGME do something to stop the suicide crisis, including addressing the sleep deprivation issue. And back then, you know, interns had 16 hour shifts, and Thomas Nasca and uh, uh, Daryl Hirsch wrote me a letter back saying that, you know, we got all under control. Thanks a lot. Um, and then they went ahead and doubled the work hours. You know what I mean? So I don't feel like they really took to heart the 76,000 signatures and the pages and pages of comments from medical students and doctors and patients and their family members. You know what I mean? I feel like that was kind of disrespectful to, um, you know, to to backtrack like that. <laughs> that felt like going back to the 1800s or something, you know? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, I know one of my cousins is a resident right now, and he was talking about how that rule actually made his job so much harder, um, and he wasn't a fan of it at all. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I had a question. Um, you know, since you opened your your clinic, there's been lots of physicians who, presumably through the retreat or, or on their own, have, have opened their own ideal medical care clinics. Um, where do you see the this movement going in the next five or ten years? Do you think you're going to see a real uh, explosion of these clinics nationwide or... or what do you see happening? Oh, definitely, especially as the word gets out, especially because a lot of this is in this Do No Harm documentary, um, which shows some of these clinics in action. Because there's one thing talking about it and people thinking it's unreal, but seeing it in a motion picture, you know, that's in a movie theater um, that really goes through sort of the dangers of not changing, which is more and more, you know, suicides and disillusioned doctors and poor care for patients versus like, oh, house calls and 60-minute visits and doctors who care. Like, I think everyone and their grandmother is going to be on the right side of this conversation and want the solutions. And, um, and even people who didn't want the solutions will try to align with us and be our best friends because it's just going to be in public interest. And once the public understands what's going on, they're going to demand that they have doctors that are real doctors again. And so I think there's just going to be a lot of uh, pressure from the outside and um, excitement among medical students and residents and physicians, you know, that they can actually do this because they'll see it like really in a, in a motion picture, they'll see that it's real, you know, and, um, and it's easy to do. It's, it's easy to open one of these practices. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Weibel. It, it's been a really great discussion. Yeah, it's super. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Take care, dear. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Nice to meet you all.
Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a League of Champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations.